morning we're taking a, a little bit of a change from uh, our walk through Mark. We just entered Mark chapter 11 last week. This morning we're going to go to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at one of the central parts, or, or the really the theme and the central part of this time of year, why we celebrate what we do. Uh, there's some things that go on here at Christmas time that I was writing down the words, they're incomprehensible. They are unfathomable, and they are truly unsearchable. The events that surround God, the creator of the universe, and and when you think about that, think beyond uh, just what we see around us, every star, every galaxy out there, and then we come into the micro, every cell, every atom, this God has created, and he enters onto the surface of this planet as one of us. A man like you and like me. That is beyond amazing. How could that be? The more one looks at this great and incomprehensible work of God, and think about it, all that happens here, his orchestration with precision of such time and events that go on in this story alone, let alone all of Scripture. His sovereign influence over men and women, moving under the direction of His will. Some of them moving under obedience to Him. And some of them are actually moving in complete ignorance of Him. And yet still walking where He determined beforehand. I repeat, the unfathomable reality that the eternal Creator God became a mortal man. Who would, He would hunger. This, this God-man would thirst He would love, he would serve, he would sweat, he would shiver, he would sleep, and he would suffer and die. As a human being, that staggers the mind that God could die, that God could live. Stop right now and I want you to think about that. Stop thinking about the dinner you have to fix, or the gifts you need to buy or wrap, or or the grandkids, or, or the grandparents. Stop thinking about the money that you're spending on events and gifts. Stop thinking about parties and celebrations. And just focus on that for just a moment. God became man. He is worthy. Think on it. Meditate on it. Try to get into the reality of it with your mind. I hope that the next several minutes will be used by our great God to reveal more of His greatness to us through His Word. Let's pray and ask for His blessing. Heavenly Father, we come to You as the most mortal of men and women. Lord, we are weak. We, we, you are strong. We, we are simple. And You have all wisdom. <clears throat> Lord, it's tough for us in seeking You, the Creator of the universe who spans all time, the great God is, we ashamedly admit that it's difficult for us to focus on you and to think about you, even for a short time this morning. Lord, help us. Please place your spirit upon us, that you would speak through your word, that we would see you, that you would manifest yourself to us in spite of my stammering tongue, in spite of our, our weak uh, concentration. Please show yourself this morning. And not simply for our blessing, but so that we would give greater praise and glory to you. For you are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.
time began long before you or I ever existed. It will continue long after our lifetime ends should the Lord God wait to return. That is nothing new to most of you. But in the same way as we look at the story of the birth of Christ Jesus, we see that much took place long before he was born in Bethlehem that day. And much has taken place and is taking place since then. But at this moment, this morning, we are going to look at a very small, and I mean really small, like only three verses out of the 11 that were read this morning small, a very small but amazing slice of God's history of man. Not only is it a tiny slice, but it includes a small number of obscure men who appear for just a moment on the pages of Scripture. And then they're gone. I want to say as I begin that a large portion of the biblical and secular history woven into this message is owed to a sermon I heard many years ago from John MacArthur. When I heard this for the first time, this information, I was astounded by how much misunderstanding I had. And I was amazed at the wisdom and the power of God behind the introduction of these little known men into the story of the early life of Jesus. Verse 1 in Matthew chapter 2 reads, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men, magi from the east, came to Jerusalem. The wise men, the magi. Who were these guys? Who were these guys? There is, of course, what we think we know. And what do we usually think of when we envision these sparsely described characters of the Christmas events? What do you usually think of? Three? Okay, what else? Rich? Good. Yeah. Okay. The, the gifts they give? Good. Anything else? Camels. That's usually what we think. And where do we get most of these ideas? We get it from Christmas cards, Christmas carols, uh, stories we've read, uh, maybe a movie we watched. And, and we get these ideas about who these guys are. They usually look pretty lonely, don't they? Riding those camels under the desert night sky with a lone star somewhere way out in the distance. I bet all of you have gotten a Christmas card with that on it sometime, at least probably even this year. That picture of these lonely men out there. Some of you may have even heard that their names were Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. Have you ever heard that, that myth? <laughs> that they were descendants of the sons of Noah from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that one was reportedly Ethiopian. Uh, I heard this, uh, that the Bishop Reinhold of Cologne, Germany, claims to have found their skulls, which are now exhibited in a casket somewhere in a cathedral in Europe. How would you identify those? That would be interesting. But what does Scripture tell us about the wise men or the magi? In reality, we only know a limited bit of information found in Matthew 2 that we read this morning. And what we can piece together through other scriptures in old, from the Old Testament like Daniel and Esther. And then there are a few New Testament references to Magi as well in the book of Acts. And if you look through some of the secular historical references, you will actually find a lot about the Magi and the culture from which they came. 
Like I said, we are going to even narrow the slice down a bit. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 3. Let me read those again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The wise men, uh, the magi, is, is the better translation. And it's a Greek word. It's a Greek word, magas, or magioi. And it is non-translatable, actually. It is a name for this group of men more than it is a description of who they are. That's what they were called, the magi. They were a hereditary priestly tribe. And they were in many ways similar to the Levites. We will look at them in a more detail in just a moment. But where do they come from? They come out of the east. And we'll look at a map for that in just a moment as well. And they were descendants of the Magian tribe associated with the Medes. The Medes and the Persians. Now, throughout history, there are basically four major world empires. First would have been the Babylonian. Second was the Medo-Persian the third great empire was the Greek. And then it was displaced by the Roman Empire. The great world empires. The Medes, that second group, were a very large and powerful group of people. Some historians think they can be traced all the way back to the time of Abraham when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. On one end of the history, we have the Old Testament documents where Magi existed in the early Babylonian Empire. They were actually a part of that. And then it goes on through, through the Medo-Persian, through the Greek, and we find them even in the Roman Empire. So they were a very long-lasting, enduring group of, of men, this tribe of the Magi. As a priestly tribe, their expertise was in these areas. First of all, mathematics. They were experts in mathematics. Astrology and astronomy. Now, at this point in history... These both were very much blended. The mystical, the supernatural influence of the stars in astrology and the scientific study of their locations and movements by astronomy. It was really one discipline. Then they were the experts of this. Agriculture, natural history, and architecture. These were the skills that these men excelled in. But, into the midst of the sophisticated culture of the Magi, God invaded with a unique means of influence. And this is where I think this gets very, very interesting. The practice of the Magi. As we look at biblical history, there comes a very specific moment. And it is 600 years before the appearance of the Gospel of Matthew. At which God prepares... And he begins to influence this pagan priestly tribe of people we call the Magi. During the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, what biblical event took place? The Old Testament students. What took place under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar that had an impact that we see in the scriptures? He destroyed something very important. Okay, he destroyed the temple. He destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And when he did so, what did he do? He took many... Jewish, Hebrew people back to Babylon. At that point in time, the Magi 
when they have gone back to Babylon, the Jewish people have ascended into a significant Babylonian leadership role. They have become important and intimate counselors for the palace. They had tremendous influence. So let's get into the scriptures and see if we can verify this. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 3. And then verse 13. In Jeremiah 39 verse 3 we read. Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in. And sat in the middle gate. Nargal Sharizer. Samgar Nebo. Sarzechim. Rabsaris. Nergal Sarizer. Rabmag. With the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. Then in verse 13. We read. So Nebuzaradan. The captain of the guard sent Nebuchadnezzar, Ben, Rabzaris, and again, Nergal, Sherezer, Rabmag, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. Now, Nergal Sherezer is a proper noun or a name, but Rabmag, which comes right after it, actually translates to mean a Babylonian official or a chief magi or magician. Nigal Sharizar, the Rabmag, is identified as chief of the Magi in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Now many of these Magi practice what could best be described as wisdom from a world's perspective. Along with their occultic practices and astrology, they had sort of this wizened mystery about them. They had also some very similar aspects to them as the religious Jews, and particularly to the Jewish priestly tribe, the Levites. The Magi were, first of all, monotheistic. They believed in one God. Secondly, they were a hereditary priestly tribe. In other words, one tribe in the midst of the much larger people group of the Medes was designated as those who would perform all religious functions. All Median priests must come from the tribe of the Magi. Thirdly, they carried around with them this small bundle of divining rods and they would use these to seek direction from their God. Which is not completely unlike what many of the Old Testament priests carried around in the Urim and the Thummim. This they also sought to find God's direction. They had stringent rules regarding unclean animals. They were very ritualistic about disposing of dead bodies. And the final one is fascinating. They had a sacrificial system, the Magi did, in which sacrifices were offered as a burnt offering. And afterward the offerer, then the priest, would eat the sacrifice that had been offered. A lot of similarities. By God's providence, the Magi were eventually impacted by spiritual men from a tiny nation Babylon had conquered far to their west. Turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 through 6. We read in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. King of Judah. And that's about 605 B.C. 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. With some of the articles of the house of God. Which he carried into the land of Shinar. To the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz. The master of his eunuchs. To bring some of the children of Israel. And some of the king's descendants. And some of the nobles. 
Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three, three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, who is that group? From among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, many of you know that Daniel said, no, we're not going to partake of this stuff, these delicacies. That's not what God would want us to do. We're going to jump down to verse 18. Now, at the end of this training period, and this time where Daniel and the other three men stayed faithful to God, we read, now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. Now get this. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. That would have even been their teachers. They were ten times better than anyone in the land of Babylon. Now one of these sons of Judah, Daniel, would now become extremely influential. So we're going to look at the power of Daniel among the Magi. As a consequence of God's devastating judgment against Judah, then the city of Jerusalem, the Magi of Babylon would encounter wisdom and teaching from Daniel, possibly even from other deported Jews. Why? Why would they hear this stuff? Because you guys know Daniel. You guys know what these men were like. Men, like God, men of God like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They lived for the glory of God. That was their life. And they would die for the glory of God. We read the testimony of their lives in the book of Daniel. It bore witness that these men were courageous. They were uncompromising. They declared Yahweh boldly even in the face of deadly lions and furnaces stoked to burn them to a crisp. They would not be put down. They could not be kept quiet. So what is it then. That they would pass on to the Magi. The accounts of God. The books of Moses. The particular prophecies. Concerning the common Messiah. The Old Testament looks. To that arrival of the Messiah. The New Testament in the Gospels. Has his arrival and describes it. Acts tells us about the church. That springs from this gospel. Of the Messiah. And then Paul directs us through the epistles of how the church should be. And then we have Revelation, the consummation there. But Daniel would teach these men because he was in charge. And we're going to see why would even, we would even say that. You might ask, what evidence do we have that Daniel had such influence on the Magi? And that would be a great question. So let's look at it. Daniel chapter 2. Turn to Daniel chapter 2 verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command in, to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. 
Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants a dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its inter interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants a dream, and we will give its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of a magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, when we look at this story, the word Chaldean is really synonymous with Magi. We see this group of people that are being relied upon by the king. I want you to jump down to verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. The wise men and the astrologers are mentioned again. Here we see the prominence of these guys. They were known as those who could interpret dreams, but none can do so except for Daniel. Jump down to verse 46 and 47. Daniel has explained this dream. Verse 46 we read, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel. And commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. This is the king. This is the king who rules and he can snap off your head whenever he wants to. He can have any woman that he wants to. He can go out and attack any land. This is Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians. And what is he doing? He is falling down prostrate before, falling on his face before Daniel at this moment. What does that say about Daniel? Verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Verse 48, then the king promoted Daniel, and look what happens here, and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Have you ever thought about that? Daniel didn't just go in there and face these lions. Daniel rose to the top of the top. He is the man in charge of all of these magi and those who are the chief counselors to the king. Verse 49, also Daniel petitioned the king, and he didn't forget his, his brothers here, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Who are those three strange names? Those are Mishael, Hanah, Hananiah and Azariah and those are their Babylonian names but Daniel sat in the gate of the king Daniel sat in the gate of the king he's not just a provincial leader he has been placed 
at the top of leadership in the land. That is where Daniel is. Now turn over to Daniel chapter 4. Beginning of verse 6 and 7. Again, Nebuchadnezzar has had one of these dreams. Verse 6, Therefore I issue a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known its, to me its interpretation. This time he even told them the dream, but they could not figure it out. Verse 8 and 9, But at last Daniel came before me, his name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the vision of my dream that I have seen, and its interpretation. Belteshazzar, Daniel's Babylonian name, is addressed as chief of the magi. And King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that the Spirit of God is within him. Now turn over one more time to Daniel chapter 5. I'm trying to drive home the importance and the, the status that God has given to Daniel at this point and how he can influence. Daniel chapter 5 verses 9. Then the king Bel Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed. And his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the word of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Daniel is the chief of the magi, of the astrologers, of the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. He is at the very top. By God's divine intervention and empowering him. What did this came out, come out of? It came out of a tragedy. I appreciated what was shared this morning. God works through tragedies. It came out of the tragedy of, of Jerusalem being completely annihilated, decimated. And these men were taken essentially as young boys to a foreign land as slaves. They were, their parents are gone. Everything has changed. But God is at work. Daniel has been elevated to the unique position as chief of this priestly group. Daniel is made the prime influencer of the influential. He is the influencer of the influential. And in this position, Daniel taught and exemplified a strong faith and commitment to God. How do we know he did so? Because of the testimony of his life in Scripture. It was spotless. You think about all the men through scripture and most of them have flaws, some of them glaring flaws, even those men God uses. But Daniel, he was, he was almost one of a kind. Uncompromising and that's how he ended up in the lion's den. But in Daniel 6, 
we're going to find something rather odd here. There is a plot formed against Daniel. And it is based on jealousy. Turn to Daniel chapter 6. Verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these, over these satraps, three governors of whom Daniel was one. That the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. King Darius, see what he's done here. He's, he's getting some administration. He's delegating authority. Then he set up this group of governing satraps that would take care of things on the ground level. And he sets above them three men, three regional directors called governors. One which is Daniel. The satraps are below them. They are on the lower level, the local level, and they answer to the governors. Now, we also read that once again, God does what? He elevates Daniel. He distinguishes him even more. And Darius comes to the point that he considers putting Daniel over the whole program. I'm just going to turn over to you, Daniel. You have wisdom that I've never seen. I can't even explain. It comes from the gods. You take care of all this. But not everybody liked that idea. Because of this, we read a plot is devised against Daniel and it's based on jealousy. But with a close look, we see that this was not a plot by the Magi. It was a scheme hatched by this lower echelon of directors called the governors and satraps. They see Daniel as a competitor who is about to rule over them directly. But at no time are the Magi even mentioned as being connected with this plot. Daniel's credibility is so high that we hear a very interesting statement of faith presented by King Darius. Daniel goes through this, uh, this plot, this scheme, and as God always does, he holds on to him, brings him out on the other side. Look at Daniel 6, verse 16. <clears throat> so the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. It was sealed. There was no backing out. Now the king went to his palace and he spent the night fasting and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, that had to be the sweetest sound that the king had heard. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him and also a king 
I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. So, the Magi, influenced by Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and possibly other Hebrews. But, you know how quickly things change. As affirming as Darius was about Daniel and Daniel's God, he does not submit to Israel's God, Yahweh. History records that during the 6th century, King Darius committed a great compromise. The compromise of Darius was that he wanted to establish a national religion. And the religion he chose was Zoroastrianism. Now Zoroastrianism believes in a single supreme being, the ultimate triumph of good over evil, fire and water represent purity, the pursuit of good works, and it is heavily involved with astrology. Now, likely the Magi, they're hoping to maintain their position of influence under Darius. They were willing to compromise. And what resulted was a mishmash You had the old Medo-Persian cultural religion overlaid with Daniel's influence from Judaism and now you have integrated with all this Zoroastrianism. And likely there was a mix of persuasions, some choosing to prefer the original Medo-Persian religions, some sticking with Daniel and what they've learned from the Old Testament scriptures. And then those who were willing to go all out with Darius and identify with Zoroastrianism. The power of the Magi. I want to look at that just a little bit here. Magi power in Medo-Persia appears to have increased until they came to the point where they were the check system to the royal office. The influence of the Magi was so strong that no one could become king. Listen to this. No one could become king of the Medes and the Persians unless two things were accomplished. First of all is that they were able to master the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi. You could not just waltz in there and king and be king unless you had studied under these guys and had mastered their arts. And secondly, you could not be king unless they approved and crowned you as king. In Esther, chapter 1, verse 13 through 14, we read, Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meresh, Marsina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. The seven wise men, or magi, are described as high-ranking officials serving as close counselors to the king. They were not only heavyweight counselors, but they could quite literally be considered kingmakers. You see where this is starting to come into Matthew chapter 2. What an awesome title to be attached to those men who came from the east to Herod in Jerusalem to seek he who is born king of the Jews. 600 years before Christ's birth, through the life of the captured Hebrew young man Daniel, God set an events, set events in motion to prepare for this visit to Herod in the land of Judah. Apparently, at least some of the Magi retained the teachings of Daniel down through the centuries. They may have been God-fearing. Some of them then may have been God-seeking men who had studied, prepared, and waited for this time. Now, the New Testament, we're going to jump over there briefly. 
And we're going to look at Magi that are mentioned there. But unfortunately, the Magi mentioned there are not nearly so honorable. If we go to the book of Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, we read, But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Then we jump over to Acts 13 and we have another one. Bar-Jesus or Elamus. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an, an intelligent man. He was with Sergius Paulus. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Both these men, Simon and Elamus, had prostituted the art of Magi for money and influence. And they were crooked. They were corrupt. So by the time the New Testament comes along, the Magi are literally despised by the Romans. They hated these guys. Now, zeroing in a little bit more now towards Matthew chapter 2. Political tension between Rome and the Medes, and they're now called the Parthian Empire, is extremely high at this point in Matthew chapter 2. Rome ruled the entire known world at the time of Christ. This included the vast majority of Europe and portions of the Middle East. You can see there in the gray, the Roman Empire, how huge it is. And you see the red star there in the middle, and that's Rome. Although Rome had stretched, excuse me, let me back up. There were some logistical challenges, though, that made Rome's total control quite difficult, if not impossible. By virtue of distance... We see that the distance from Rome to Persia was approximately 2,500 miles. This included travel across the Mediterranean Sea in that first blue circle and the vast blazing desert of Arabia in that other circle. There was a certain isolation of the West and Rome from what was called the Parthian Empire. And that Parthian Empire is made up of the Medes and Persians and the old Babylonian remnant. Although Rome had stretched its powerful iron arm over the known world, they were always on edge about the eastern Parthian Empire. Rome and the Parthians, they were bitter enemies. They fought vicious battles. They fought in 63 B.C. They fought in 55 B.C. They fought in 40 B.C. And where do you think Rome of the north and west and the Parthians of the east, the Medo-Persians, where would they carry out their battle? Their battles were continually fought in the land of Syria, Jordan, and Palestine. What's labeled up here the buffer zone. Consequently, Israel was literally a war zone between these powers of the west and the east. So at this specific point in the history of Matthew 2, which is about two years after the birth of Jesus, a ruling body called the Majestani existed in Medo-Persia. As the name Majestani would indicate, the group was totally composed of Magi. They controlled absolute choice over the position of king in their empire. 
They wanted to battle Rome once again and knock them out. But they had a huge problem. And his name was King Phraates IV. He was a very, very weak king and had consequently been deposed. Now the Magistani, the Magi, were searching for his replacement. A king who could lead the Eastern Empire against Rome. You see what's happening here? From the Roman and Judean perspective, we have Herod's great, great fear. History portrays Herod the Great as being in very ill health at this time. Caesar Augustus was also old and very weak. And Tiberius, the Roman military commander-in-chief, had just retired. To make matters worse locally, Herod's army was away from the city of Jerusalem on a mission. The time was ideal for a move by the Eastern Empire. In many respects, the land of Judah was ripe for the taking. It is, a fairly, it is fairly certain that when these kingmakers came riding in Jerusalem, they did not come as three lonely men on three camels. It is suspected that they likely came accompanied by a thousand fully armed Persian cavalry riding on fine Persian war horses. Into Jerusalem came this entourage. So when the kingmaker Magi of the East came into Jerusalem that day saying, Where is he? Who is born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east. And have come to worship him. When Herod, King Herod heard this. He was troubled. That word means he was agitated. He was shaking. And all Jerusalem with him. The arrival of this young King Jesus. Generated a variety of responses. In conclusion. In Jerusalem on that day. Two world forces met. One wanted to destroy the very young king of the Jews. The other wanted to make him their political leader and king. Neither wanted what God intended. Nor did God need their assistance in any way. God had foretold his predetermined will through his prophet Daniel 530 years before the birth of Christ. We read in Daniel 7 verse 13, 14. I was watching, says Daniel, in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Speaking of the Messiah. That all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away. And his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel had the picture of this king, this Messiah coming in such great glory. And here he is as a two year old child. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 says he God indeed was foreordained excuse me Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you when did his kingship begin before the foundation of the world Jesus is king wrote Paul unashamedly without hesitation in 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the sovereign, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be glory and everlasting power. Amen. Last week, last week, we examined by God's providence how Jesus entered Jerusalem, hailed as the Messiah King. 
only one week before he would be crucified by the Romans and the people of Israel. On that cross of execution, hanging above Jesus in the final hour of his life, there would be a sign. Mark 15 says, Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, The King of the Jews. The Roman soldiers. It says they twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. Then a reed in his right hand. Then they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying. Hail king of the Jews. Then likewise in Mark we read the chief priests also mocking among themselves. But the scribes said he saved others himself he cannot save. Let Christ the king of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. The king, the king, the king. It comes up everywhere. It comes up in prophecies. It comes up in mockery. It comes up in interrogation and questioning. Are you a king? Three days after that execution, this king served notice of victory over another far greater foe. In Hebrews we read that through death, the death of Christ... He might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Through Jesus' resurrection from death, he conquered death and the devil for those who will turn from their own will and trust their lives to him. Repent and believe. Reality is that Jesus Christ has always been king. He was king before his resurrection. He was king before his death on the cross that paid for the sins of his people. He was king before his entry into Jerusalem, before his miraculous birth in Bethlehem, before Micah, Isaiah, David, and Zechariah, and others prophesied about him hundreds of years before, before he created the world out of nothing, before time began, and forever after this world is gone. Jesus is king. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in the not too distant future, he will reign fully acknowledged by everyone and everything that has ever existed. In Revelation 15, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for us. And they say of Him, Great and marvelous are Your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are Your ways, O King of the saints. Revelation 17, 14. These will make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Then those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Revelation 19.16 And He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see the same King who commands you that you must believe and bend the knee as the one who came to earth as a servant king. Not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom to pay us who were in bondage and captivity to sin and death. To pay 
and buy us out of those through his life and his death. Turn back to Matthew chapter 2 and we close. Verse 11 of chapter 2. And picture in your mind a small home, a small stucco type house, probably part of the, a wall of houses there in that city, in that from a small little village of Bethlehem. And you have these men coming up with a thousand steeds armed to the teeth. And you have these men at the front of them get off of those horses and come to the door. And they're dressed in full royal regalia. They had these conical shaped hats. They had tassels everywhere. They would have been brilliant. What are they doing in this neighborhood? Never, no one's been here like this. And all these, these, this cavalry. Look as they come to this door and read this. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord of lords and King of kings, we understand so little about your royalty your sovereignty your power and your mercy and your kindness Lord wake us up our sleepy lazy souls so we will see you more and more gloriously so we will begin to see you more and more as you really are and as more and more as we will see you someday forever Lord, thank you that you have given to many of us the privilege of being able to worship you as your sons and daughters. Purify, deepen, humble our worship. Strengthen it, Father, so that you will be glorified. And Lord, I pray, also as one of my brothers prayed earlier this morning, these kings had come from a thousand miles away to find this king. And yet, the scribes who knew all about it in the Old Testament prophecies, even where you would be, where Christ would be born, they, they wouldn't even take the six-mile trip down there. Lord, I pray for those in our assembly this morning who have yet to come and worship you, whose hearts have been close to you. Lord, may you have mercy on them and show them your holiness, your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. And please show them their desperate need for you, that they would love you and seek you. For you are worthy, O King of kings. Amen.